Speaker, Mr. Speaker, sounds like a most important relationship, doesn't it? Why doesn't the Prime Minister just say the truth and tell the Indigenous peoples that he doesn't give a fuck about their rights? That was Romeo Saganash speaking a few years ago in Canadian Parliament about the uh, hollow displays of compassion that this country's gotten used to. So, Justin, Remembrance Day is coming up. Remembrance Day. <laughs> that is a strange one because um, you see people, like you take a school, a TDSB school, the Toronto District School Board, um, and they made a big deal out of Orange Shirt Day. So Orange Shirt Day was named as such as a, as a, I don't know, commemoration of the internment and mass death of Indigenous children in Canadian residential schools over the past hundred and some years. Uh, I guess that started in the 1850s and uh, last school was closed sometime in the 1980s. Um, and, or, in, you know, I think it came from an anecdote from one of the survivors who said, you know, she was made to remove and, and give up her orange shirt that she was so proud of upon arrival at school. And that was just the first, you know, of a long period of breaking down her identity and, and trying to destroy her as a person and as an indigenous person and all the other genocidal things that Canada has done to indigenous people over the centuries. Um, so it's just really, it's really something to me that the schools that are commemorating that and trying to remember that are also commemorating remembrance, remembrance day, which is about world war one, uh, which is, I mean, you know, there's there's a case you could make, you know, and we, we could talk at some other time about a case for World War II, certainly fighting the Nazis. The Nazis had to be defeated, whatever, um, by, uh, you know, the segregationist lynching of the United States uh, and, of course, the Soviet Union. But um, but World War One, World War One was a war between imperialist powers uh, who had already, you know, just finished colonizing Africa, just finished, um, you know, genocidally extending all of their, uh, you know, their states in North America across uh, all of North America. And, and I mean, what's what was across the board, the truth is that after a really intense period of colonial expansion overseas, and especially of like escalated cultural mobilization, mm -hmm. World War One was sort of the high watermark of mass patriotism throughout the West. So I feel like a lot of these rituals are the inertia of that. And, and in even the specific wording, we'll get to what that means in terms of the traces that are left with us. Yeah, so, and you wear a poppy, and then, like, when I was in school, it was, like, in Flanders Fields, uh, you know, we shall not rest while poppies grow in Flanders Fields. So, Flanders, I guess, is somewhere in Belgium, Belgium, mm -hmm. and there's poppies there, <laughs> I guess. So, and this is all fine, and, like, I, I think there are, there are enough people around this who have sensitivities. Like, we can chat through all of this, but I, I want, to the extent that we can, to focus on this one phrase that stands out throughout former British Empire commemorations. Okay, but hold on, hold on. Let me please, just, okay, let me just Because Flanders Fields is Keep a going. militarist poem. It's a Absolutely. militarist poem. It's it's about not making peace. He's It's something like, you know, take up the sword against the foe and, and um, stuff like that. What does it say? Yeah, take up our quarrel with the foe. To you from failing hands we throw the torch. Be it yours to hold it high if ye break faith with us who die we shall not sleep though poppies grow in flanders fields which and is like Canadian. which is still falling behind in militarism a lot of the previous iterations of o canada but yeah yeah right right <laughs> all right yeah so so now okay so we have orange shirt day and uh you know you know the little you know the signs in front of the school um where they they manipulate the letters, the actual yeah, yeah, you know, yeah. block letters. So the block letters in October, the local school said, you know, uh, Orange Shirt Day is this day, October something. And then uh, now, today, if you go back by that sign, it says November 11th, Remembrance Day, lest we forget. 
program. Yeah. What Second Ash was getting at too is this like, and Leanne Simpson talks about sort of the displays of compassion and grieving that Canada does. The really tricky thing with this tradition is that there are decent people trying to like manage these contradictions, and there are really cynical folk who approach compassion and everything else as like territory to occupy. So, I mean, it's really tricky to figure out who is even serious about the pretenses in these processes of like half historical reckoning we're going through. Which brings wait, us wait. compassion, to... compassion as territory to occupy. That sounds very interesting. What can you, can you, uh, can you give, give me a, a minute and a half on that? Yeah, I'll just say that there's like two major figures in sort of this period, that that period of uh, of kind of Canadian British propaganda that we'll we'll chat about today. One in particular is the English poet Rudyard Kipling, and the other is the Scottish poet and writer and future Canadian Governor General John Buchan. Um, Buchan's wrote some of the most detailed material on. British imperial plans, particularly in South Africa, where he was one of the central figures who sort of created the conceptual apparatus for stripping black people of rights throughout South Af- the South African Union. And in what was it called? He's got a couple of different, like he's got a bunch of works on this, but one of them is this fictionalized book called Lodge in the Wilderness, which basically has a bunch of like British imperial experts get together in East Africa and talk about their plan for empire. And the line he has is something to the effect of like, any sword the enemy has, take it. So like he he makes very palpable the fact that qualms about colonial brutality are not his to worry about. That said, if people are being moved by humanitarian sentiment, by appeals to common humanity, take that too, you know, like, wherever there is a sword, take it, is his sort of wording. And that is the idea here. It's not just people who are part of a more humanistic imperial tradition. It's also people for whom the political and social force of people's sense of a common humanity is like a is something politically they, with some strategic reason, prize and try to seize. Exploitable. It's almost like... Um... It's almost like a imperialist nineteenth century hacker mentality. Like anything you, anything in human nature, you can you can use and repurpose. Yeah, and I mean, well, that and whatever we could go through case by case from like slavery before to anti-Semitism now. But every principal vice of the white supremacist West, they then learn to turn against their adversaries. You know what I mean? Like right. the scramble for Africa is done to abolish slavery. The yes. attacks in the Middle East are done because the West, of course, cares about Jews. Like, it's just Christians bizarre. But, Jews, like, yeah. it's very template where it's like anything that you criticize us with, we will twist to make a tool of our power. So, okay. So, now, what is what, what is this lest we forget? What, what are we trying What's not to forget? What's crazy about lest we forget is that is less the poem it comes from, which is a Rudyard Kipling poem, and more the fact that it's from Kipling. I mean... For about a hundred years, starting in the 1860s, I mean, maybe that's arbitrary because it was both before and after, but that's when Canada was confederated as such. There was pretty open white supremacist acculturation in the society, right? It's not that unique. It's like a piece or a fragment of the wider Western whole, but this is all admitted, right? In the principal Anglo-Canadian province, Ontario. Who was it? I, I forget the, the name, Pratt and someone else. But anyway, people can look it up online. It's it's really available on archive.org. It's called Teaching Prejudice. And it is a study that was conducted on behalf of the Ontario Human Rights Commission, where they're just like, we're going to look at a bunch of social studies books. And by the way, for several decades, we've been teaching people to be racist with racist texts that are open empire celebration. And the author singled out Kipling. Like the national anthem. <laughs> like the national anthem, but man, like I'm going to let's let's go through a lot of I feel like sometimes we speak about this stuff too indirectly. And there's a sense that there's like a condescension or an arrogance. The viciousness of these people cannot be underestimated. So I want to again stress 
this Rudyard Kipling is a guy whose poetry was read in Canadian and British imperial classrooms across the world as gospel, right? I'm going to read some of what this stuff was. So let's start with his ode to the gunboat of the famous gunboat diplomacy. Often we think about like, you know, anonymous machinery of war. You accidentally hit people. I'm going to read from this 1898 poem, The Destroyers, about the big naval vessel that were pounding coasts from British vessels. The strength of twice 3,000 horse that, th- that seek the single goal. And now we come into the actual hate. The line that holds the rending course, the hate that swings the whole. The stripped hulls slinking through the gloom at gaze and gone again. The brides of death that wait the groom, the choosers of the slain. And this thing, like the doom bolt in the darkness free, the mind that splits the main, the white hot wake, the the wildering speed, the choosers of the slain. The... There's a lot of coding in the way these guys write, but the hinting about an assertive and cohesive politics of imperial hate is unmistakable. Now, for people... Are you suggesting, Dan, that Canada was teaching children to hate? I want to read this next one. (laughs) I I don't know, like, people... That was was an anti-Palestinian racist phrase that I was just throwing in there as as a... Oh, I didn't even pick up on it. I feel like it's been so long since now they're just like, you're all terrorists. Like, I feel like they've lost the plot even on that one. But yeah, (laughs) my mind's a little distracted just because this is a particularly grim poem I'm going to read from right now. You have to look this up online to believe it. It's called The Grave of the Hundred Head. And it's a horror show. Like, I'm sorry that I'm going to read this, but this is what we're still sloganizing about. It's This is about a British imperial massacre in Burma. What's today, Burma or Myanmar? Yeah. Yeah. It's about sort of Anglo-Indian expeditionary warfare in the late 1880s, where they're talking about the piling up of a hundred heads that have been severed. Like, I'm going to read a bunch of these stanzas because this is just, I mean, I'm going to read this. You wonder why Canada is leading the international fray in far-right white supremacist organizing. And you have people like Barbara Perry, who are the credible researchers on this being, saying, when we have a society with unexamined white supremacist foundations it's gonna you know this is what's gonna happen so just just this is a war that took place in 1885 i gather the anglo the third anglo-burmese war which to my understanding was the beginning of a period of of sort of like sustained what they would call pacification because they make up the language but sort of counterinsurgent warfare and what's weird is they describe in this poem it as a slaughter of people in a rebel village but of course it was a rebel village in the sense that like Britain and South Asia decides that this other chunk of territory next to India is also going to be theirs. So, I mean, rebel presumes a sort of British title to this territory that seems suspect. Yeah, just like the Louis Riel rebellion of All the same that. year, actually, 1885. Totally. It's not really a rebellion well, <laughs> if it's your territory and they're coming to take it. I, I mean, so I'm gonna, I'm just going to say what's coming before I say it. Like, this is gonna. This is the curricular material about why the death of a single white soldier is avenged by the killing of one hundred people, the severing of their heads, and the piling of those heads in a demonstrative um, pile on top of the grave of the single murdered British officer. The better to instill terror in the local population. So they go into the village. The men of the first shikaris shouted and smoke and slew, turning the grinning jingle onto the howling crew. The Jemadar's flanking party butchered the folk who flew. Long was the morn of slaughter. Long was the list of slain. Five score heads were taken. You know, you get your math in, the hundred. Five score heads in twain. And the men of the first shikaris went back to their graves again. Each man bearing a basket, red as his palms that day, Red as the blazing village, the village of Pabbing Bay, and the drip, drip, drip from the baskets reddened the grass by the way. They made a a pile of their trophies, high as a tall man's chin, head upon head distorted, set in a sightless grin, anger and pain and terror, 
stamped on a smoke-scorched skin. And the story is that it's, the lesson is plain. Uh, thus was the lesson plain, the price of a white man slain. Um, uh, so this is, yeah, well, so this is the guy whose poem is now on the uh, Toronto school board board. No, I didn't try, by the way, to find this book. Like, you'll see the image in the notes. I just went to try to get, like, a collection of this stuff because I'd read some nasty stuff. The book I pick up from a random bookstore, used bookstore, has 22 swastikas covering the book. Um, <laughs> and it's... I'll, I'll Maybe to wrap up the sort of reading this filth part of this thing, I'll just say that um, a very noted Canadian figure, Annie McClung, with her own history of white supremacy, but I digress. In 1945, publishes her memoirs. Annie, Annie or Nellie? Nellie, thank you so much. Sorry. It's been a while. I'm going from memory on this. I hadn't looked at her book in a while. But so Nellie McClung is writing about her like upbringing in Manitoba and going through the racist acculturation of classes. And she mentions Kipling, but what's interesting about it is it's 1945, and she mentions Kipling to say, look, and she quotes this poem at real length to say, look how we're different than the Nazis, where the Nazis, she, she doesn't pursue the point, but she's basically saying the sort of educational mission represented by the residential schools does have an indoctrination and like fake native uplift component to the torture. And so we're different than the Nazis, which, you know, as far as it goes, is true. But again, listen to this one. This is one of the um, real landmarks in the British introduction or the European introduction of machine gun fire into the scramble for Africa was the Battle of Omdurman, which is sort of like, you know, the... Yeah, that's covered in a recent exactly. episode of Civilizations. I think Scramble for Africa 6, in case you're... Oh, I got the preludes. I haven't gotten to the actual, the vengeance and the bone kicking into the, into the sea. Yeah. Yeah. So so I'm sure you go, for for people who haven't heard, like the, the fatality count is celebrated in the British press as like north of 12,000, huge numbers of North Africans killed, very low British fatality rates for the simple reason that they're using Maxim, the famous Maxim guns and basically just massacring people. Incidentally, the next Canada Day in New Brunswick, a reenactment of that battle forms part of the official Canada Day or then uh, Dominion Day festivities. So Kipling writes this thing and he's like, look at how magical the English are. We're not going to keep slaughtering. But what he does is he writes this poem from the combined perspective of Kitchener, the uh, uh, Lord Kitchener, the commander, the commanding officer. And the and, and some like fictionalized... spot the Canadian spot the Canadian town names of all these people. There's a town in Ontario called Kitchener, which was renamed as part of the World War One war fever. Topically, <laughs> um, and what they're saying and and the message of this poem is: we just slaughtered a lot of you. We're addressing the survivors. You will do what you're told and stay in line. Like the opening line is: Oh, Hubshi, carry your shoes in your hand. And bow your head on your breast. This is the message of Kitchener, who did not break you in jest. And he continues to taunt, go safely being abased. Um, the line is that everybody's lives are forfeit by battle and they have no right to live. So the British would be within their rights to just kill everybody. But they're magnanimous. So speaking to the conquering Kitchener, this fake narrator says, not at the mouth of his clean-lipped guns shall ye learn his name again, but letter by letter, from calf to calf, at the mouth of his chosen men. The English are magic in that they terribly carpet the earth with dead, and before their cannon cool, they walk unarmed by twos and threes to call the living to school. This is like the... It, this. It's true that this is the authentic voice of the torturous educational mentality of the British Empire that scarred Canadian, that scarred Indigenous society in what is now Canada. But um, 
the the fact that this is being un like that the words from this poet are still a centerpiece of our acculturation system is just madness. So wait, but yeah, because because it's also like I've noticed the way they talk about teaching. <laughs> yeah. Like teaching you a lesson, right? Like no, teaching it's but it's you a, the teaching totally, you the, the price teaching of you a, a lesson is a, right? yeah, it's a so it's like Kipling is major on this, like to to talk about the pedagogical value of torture, murder, blood, displays of violence, right? I mean, um, Churchill has that from 1899, right? When they were in, I think they were in Sudan. Maybe they were in mm-hmm. Sudan, or maybe they were. Yeah, in it was his River War stuff. Oh. Because he might have been in Afghanistan, but he said something like, you know, from now on, we're going to kill entire villages. We're very cruel people and they need to know that or something. We're going to make that understood. Like, it's always, it's just interesting because of the role of this line and this poem in the Toronto District School Board. (laughs) You know, like the idea of like what imperialists think of teaching, like teaching is something you teach people their place through violence. And we're literally teaching these poems in our schools now, in our, you know, ostensibly anti-racist schools. It's really something. And the poetry piece is ridiculous, but like, I, I just need to mention, there's this scene that I can't get out of my head where like, in there's this movie, which I learned that Hitler loved and made required watching for the SS called Lives of a Bengal Lancer. And it, its protagonist paired played by Gary Cooper, I want to say, is a McGill alumnus who is like a Scottish-Canadian McGill alumnus fighting frontier warfare in India. And the movie culminates with him yelling poetry and throwing some bomb at this like rebel arms store or something. Do you have any idea when it's set? Um, I think then-ish. Like, I mean, I think it's supposed to be sort of contemporaneous oh like the idea so he's is fighting uh, like terrorists he's fighting like indian yeah he's national, fighting indian yeah. nationalists right I, yeah he's exactly but th- this idea it, it's in terms of the swastikas it's significant because it's just like the hitler for his part i've been i've been doing a lot of research into the far right lately but the it is very sp- like it is is almost sycophantic in his admiration of the British Empire. And what he missed and what they were really weak on was this point which didn't have to do in the heyday of British white supremacy with like squeamishness or them not being so brutal. It really was an extraordinarily detailed, calculated move, which is we cannot control this much territory with white troops. We need to be doing this through indirect rule. That means carrots, sticks, and like psychologically effective means of controlling societies that if it came to just straight fighting, we would be ejected from, right? Yeah, exactly. As the anti-colonialists continuously noted, the numbers are never in favor of the imperialists, right? I mean, they're always, they always need, especially the British really need, uh, the colonized to do most of the fighting, most of the work, most of everything for them. And what was a little frustrating for me, like, so one of the uh, really good researchers on proper sort of support for Nazism back in the day in in Canada and Quebec is Jean-Francois Nadeau, who wrote this book. But where it comes to, he he actually mentions this sort of all of Kipling's stuff being covered in swastikas until uh, until the Nazis actually take power in 33. But he's like, but... Kipling, once the British were at war with the Germans, was so anti-German that it can't have been a big deal. And it's just such a misunderstanding of yeah, what this stuff is about. That's really ridiculous. I mean, that's but that but that also is a big part of the whole strategy is to play up the differences between British imperialists and German Nazis and American racists. And there's also been like there a was so much common ground between these totally. these people and these ideas and ideologies. 
And it's got to be said that there's like a bit of an ideological pact on the Palestine question where it's like part of the game of pretending to have an anti-Semitism crisis around things that are not anti-Semitism is not discussing what actual anti-Semitism is. Like that position on the German thing just makes no sense. Well, okay, yeah. And like the this yeah. is, World War One is is again like a very, very like it's not uh it's not a good one for it's not a good one to to talk about as anti like as as imperialists. Like you don't want to bring this one up because Germany is actually probably the haven for Jews in World War One, right? On on real anti-Semitism 101, just to step back one level, like the Dreyfus affair is the famous thing in the late 1800s, right? And the, the whole Dreyfus thing of the affair Dreyfus affair is pre-World is... War One. It's a French officer who's a Jewish origin, who's put on trial for falsely accused of secretly passing information and helping the Germans, who the are Germans. the most radically pro-Jewish European power, and therefore anyone in their enemy, any one of their enemies that's Jewish, is suspect suspect of a so called double loyalty to Germany. And it's not, and it's not as though like, so. There's a huge German Jewish community. It's not as though the German government, by, like Germany, by World War One, certainly has its issues with anti-Semitism. But very concretely, the German advance against Russia is preventing is like is against forces that are the ones doing the pogroms back then. And right. again, and then and, this and is... the and the Balfour Declaration isn't until fairly deep into World War One, which is when the British get the idea that they would be the protectors of the Jews of the Ottoman Empire and so on. So, for example, the um, director of British propaganda at the time, who later becomes the Canadian Governor General, John Buchan, I'm going to read from one of his like extraordinarily popular World War One propaganda tracks. Oh, where is it? Did I? There we go. Cap. So beside the Jew was behind it and the Jew hated Russia worse than hell. So the story is the Jew was behind the whole war because the Jew through Germany is trying to take down Russia because all the Jews want to overthrow the Russian government because Russia, the czarist Russia is persecuting the Jews. So the whole war that the West is fighting for as he sort of is representing it in these pages is a return match for the pogroms and behind each Teutonic or Germanic business concern, you'll eventually find in Germany, the man who's ruling the world just now, uh, a little white faced Jew in a bath chair with an eye, like a rattlesnake. And he has his knife to the empire of the czar because his aunt was outraged and his father flogged in some one-horse location on the Volga. And again, like this should be a subject of anti-racist discussion, but Mordecai, Mordecai Richler was not like a, a leftist by any means. And here he's just like, the reason that Buchan gets off the hook for a lot of this stuff, he sort of explains, and he says, for all of Buchan, like Kipling's brutal anti-Semitism, but anyway, Buchan mellowed, how do I, have, where is it here? Like, this is Mordecai Richler, you know, super uh, well-known Montreal writer. Montreal novelist and essayist, uh, what, 80s or earlier, 50s, 60s? Oh, he was doing it for a while, and I don't really love his stuff, so I'm going to get it yeah, wrong. I but, like, he would have had stuff in the 80s for sure. There were people, yeah, born in, born in 1931, died in 2001. His famous books are, like, 1959 and 1997. So, yeah. Okay. So yeah. anyway, he explains that like many another promising young anti-Semite, Buchan mellowed into an active supporter of Zionism, perhaps in the forlorn, ho <laughs> forlorn hope that hooky-nosed gourmets would quick ma quit Mayfair for the negative. <laughs> um, wow. I mean, that that's also, yeah. I mean, but the whole point is that none of this, like there's a very superficial branding over all of it. But on none of these issues is substantive discussion allowed, and it, it puts people in a difficult position. And I really do think there are people in the educational sector who have some space to try to do anti-racist work and are trying. But like the sophistication of the means of co-optation are incredible, and the persistence of some of this stuff is just is just wild. 
Wow. No, I mean, I, I'm, I'm kind of stunned, but because, okay, so where is, where does John buck in? That's B-U-C-H-A-N. Yeah. Where does he fit into curriculum now? Cause I don't, I've never heard of the guy. Like, I don't think he's taught in schools. or So what's today, wild right? is if you want to immigrate to Canada, you have to pass a test and there is currently, it's a Harper error, but it's still on, on file on the Canadian Department of, on the Canadian Department of Heritage website, there's a citizenship guide called Discover Canada, in which John Buchan, wearing native headdress, is represented as the emblem of Canadian multiculturalism. Um. So if you go to the Discover Canada guide, page 11, you'll see something to the effect of, I got it wrong, unity and diversity or something. And what this is speaking to is something that's actually serious, which is that the, like, white supremacy isn't a natural thing, right? I don't mean white supremacy, but I mean, like, whiteness. That is to say, the creation of multi-European composite settler groups under English or British direction took work. And Buchan was one of the theorists of, like, how you create composite white settler nationalities, which was his major focus in South Africa, where it came to the reconciliation of Boer and Englishmen at black expense. And he then extended that through the 20th century into a Canadian experience, which is now for immigrants who are studying for Canadian citizenship tests spun as like the epitome of multiculturalism. Oh, this reminds me of Pearson's, um, <laughs> Pearson's peacekeeping or peacemaking initiative as uh, helping the U.S., Britain, France, and Israel reconcile um, when they were all getting upset um, over the invasion of Egypt in 1956, I guess it was. The super classic, I don't mean, again, I've been going far right, and I don't mean to say it's all far right, but Lothrop Stoddard, who was who I sort of know mostly as the English, rather the New England, Harvard-educated, writer who introduced the term untermensch or underman into Nazi vocabulary. And Stoddard, I think, is the one you told me is the guy who kind of wrote about the Haitian Revolution and said everything that you need to know about the Haitian Revolution, except he was against it, whereas... I don't know if he told, said everything you need to know against it. Like, he wrote his doctoral thesis on the Haitian Revolution in the sense that, like, he was one of the principal... He was very influential um, under, the, under the Nazis, his work was. And the idea of the untermensch or the underman was an idea that concerned precisely the sort of slave revolts that the Haitian Revolution epitomized. Right. So his Harvard PhD was about the Haitian Revolution before he wrote The Revolt of the Underman. <clears throat> Excuse me, my throat. I, I'm probably getting the title wrong. I think it's called The Revolt Against Civilization, something, something underman in the title, but you'll you can find it easily enough. And his whole line... Less in that book, actually. The, the book where he really pursues this point is called something like The Rising Tide Against World White Supremacy. And in that book, he says the he, problem he, that... He means that in a bad way. <laughs> oh, dear Lord, yeah. He's just like, we... You know, Gerald Horn, in doing some of the best anti-racist scholarship that's being done right now, has a really evocative phrase where he describes the unleashing by England of open investment or what he called free trade in Africans. Right. And he says that like, like right? yeah, so at, with 1688, the slaving monopoly of the Royal African company is set aside and private traders just, and he has a phrase to the effect of like, with the manic energy of crazed bees set upon Africa, shackling people and dragging them across the Atlantic. Stoddard has the same bees thing. He's just like, like crazed bees from 1500 through 1900. We took over the world. Uh, it's been great, but we're losing it a bit. We're not going to be able to sustain this. We can't fully keep Asia. We should focus on continued black subordination. And the main problem is that we lost the plot during World War I and we're fighting each other. We need pan-white reconciliation, the better to dominate everybody else. Like that's his whole line, which in politer terms, Pat Buchanan takes up this century. 
so white intra white reconciliation <laughs> to prevent the decline of white supremacy. Exactly. And to make like to prevent it's a weird thing where it's like to prevent the decline of this fiction which only exists if you've got this solidarity. So like they all what's really remarkable about all the racist theory is they kind of know that it's all BS and it's just like how does bullshit artistry work like how can you get people to think this nonsense and where does that work for power is there is their thing right two other quick points just before i i lose them um what's really important for kipling is the idea of organic thought and plain speech that's coded to mean complicated lying stuff you know that's a right. big deal well, this is yeah we've we're gonna have to spend the next year and a half talking about this because for the longest time I was fooled by this, right? Like yeah. the Chomsky lineage, Orwell, um, Strunk and White, you know, the idea that um, people politically use fancy words and roundabout constructions and Latin words specifically to uh, hide, um, you know, nefarious uh, and nefarious political agendas and then therefore the alternative is to speak clearly and plainly and then you realize that speaking clearly and plainly and doing so in a deceptive way is precisely what imperialists have in british imperialists specifically have been explicitly all about including in these very texts that are advising you to to write this way but it's just like like the slavery, the anti-Semitism template. Like it's all the same. Where it's the people who were using coded Latin and Greek in words were them. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like the the British, the whole model of the British higher education system is higher Greek learning or like you know the Latin clergy and it's in stuff which popular literacy can't touch because it's a separate vernacular. So what they, they're just absorbing that critique and then redoing it in shorter words it all has to do with this coded language and you can really find like kipling is very specific the germans are very specific about that and very fixated on like jews are the weak link in the chain mobilize against them and that will sharpen our thing and i just want to quote very briefly i won't quote it too much but just to say that like uh, einstein is so hated in germany for this and Kipling has some really hilarious attacks on Einstein. Like Einstein, Einstein is hated for science, or Einstein is hated for universalism, or Einstein is hated for being obscure or for being clear, or what is it? What? Like Einstein is left adjacent, a eh? right. So he is a bit of a leftist, but more than that, the whole idea. Um, I don't want to collapse Kipling and the Nazis too much, though, again, I don't mean we're not talking about different universes. But in both cases, you really are talking about a response to popular rationality and an attempt to restore a rationalist basis of power from an earlier era of European history. So since Burke, the idea that the French Revolution and all this like modern stuff was the work of old Jewry. I mean, that's written all through his reflections so, so on the French Revolution. Burke, so, oh, so Burke is an old anti-Semite too, but like 18th century anti-Semitism, like the French Revolution is because of Jews. I mean, yeah, yeah. but And like pioneering, you know, a lot of the later tropes, I, I that's the earliest stuff I'm aware of. Like the old Jewry references for the explanation of who did the French Revolution is really like a sort of protocols template early on. Um. And and there's a like I'm part of what got me very interested in this is the um, after the British massacre at Jallianwallabagh in 1919 in India, where a large crowd was fired upon and just massacred by British forces. There was a debate in the British House of Commons, and Edward Montague, the one member of the British cabinet who was Jewish, was. Well, I, he, I mean, he like, there's no romanticizing Montague, but I guess he was critical in some way. And there was a lot of this commentary of being like, what do you expect? He doesn't have our English sense of inductive reasoning. He's being screaming in Yiddish in tone. And that sort of idea that like 
we have an organic German, an organic English nationality, and foreigners won't get the code, don't speak in the code, and bring their abstract ideas without respecting our multi-generational coded meanings is kind of key. So it's in that sense that Einstein, partly in being like, I've got the scientific authority and ideas that are different. I don't know, the Einstein thing is complicated, but it's in that sense that uh, Kipling writes what you can read online, The Stranger, which is a very specific poem talking about the way that English as a coded language works only where other people are excluded, because where other people are involved, they're not getting the hints and the lies that English folk are telling one another among themselves get disrupted. So the poem reads. Wait, were you, were you going to read? The... No, no, no. I was, I'm not going to read the whole poem. I'm just like, you can okay. check it online. It's not, it's not really worth, worth reading line by line. <laughs> My point is just that like, Plains we're in this really bizarre moment where all this winking, I mean, it's the same thing with all of these guys, whether it's Winston Churchill, like we could go down the list, but what, there's this really bizarre division where the extraordinarily racist material they write still circulates on the white supremacist blogosphere with pride. Then, and then their names and their great deeds circulate in the mainstream uh, with pride as well, right? Churchill and people, stands up to the Nazis. Kipling hated the Germans. Totally. Uh, what I, I don't know what else Kipling did, but <laughs> I mean, really, I guess he fought against um, Indian barbaric cultural practices, right? I mean... Well, but I mean, more than that, like he, he was the, it's hard to really reconstruct, I think, what poetry of this sort meant back then before all like the multimedia propaganda stuff we have right now. Mm. It was really important. Like, I think it was, yeah. it, it almost like Kipling's intervention basically swayed um, one of the early 20th century Canadian elections in Tory favor because he wrote some big thing for the Montreal Star being like rallying loyalists. Like he was a real power. And that history still is alive in big sectors of this, of this society. And on the one hand, there's the explosive growth of properly white supremacist organization, which has a very infiltrationist strategy where like, there's like, you can read, especially in some of the more peripheral locations, the press trolling really suggests people who are like winking about some proper racism. But the numbers are not contested. There are big numbers of like growing far rightists. And we really misstate it often by trying to be, by, by misunderstanding even the swastika stuff. Like it's not a matter of people sympathizing with Germany or something. It's a matter of people linking up with an intergeneral racism in this society, which we sort of simultaneously disavow and sidestep, but really need to think about straight on. Right. So when you said intergen, I guess you meant intergenerational, but it's like um, the, the whole basis of education or patriotism or these, these rituals that we're um, celebrating like Remembrance Day. It's, I mean, there's like a there's like a revisiting on some level of things like statues or the name of X university formerly known as Ryerson, but everybody's still everybody's still lining up to to celebrate World War One, which is you know and the and an like a and a militarist like it's not a pacifist uh, holiday about World War One. It's not like lest we forget the pointlessness of trench warfare that slaughtered millions of, of working people from all these countries that the socialists were trying desperately from all these different countries were trying desperately to, to prevent and that the powers that be assassinated, you know, like the French socialist leader, anti-war leader, Jean Jaurès or whatever to, to make sure that that war. Well, and the anti-conscription fighting, like the anti-conscription stuff here was grim. Like it's most famous in Quebec and it was probably most intense in Quebec, but there were a lot of people who took serious hits for avoiding, 
you know, authorities who are trying to throw them into trenches. Uh, um, Buchan's version. Buchan wrote a version. Ewing Buchan, not John Buchan. Does Ewing, Ewing Buchan have anything to do with John Buchan? I don't know who that is, honestly. Ewing Buchan wrote a version of the national anthem. Oh. Um, o Canada, our heritage, our love, thy worth we praise, all other lands above. <laughs> Which already, you're like, really? You're like, bless Canada and nowhere else? <laughs> but Which is also but, pretty late because, I mean, the, the real point is... But wait, that, I got more. I okay, got more. I'm sorry. Please. You gotta get, we got to get through this. Uh, from sea to sea throughout their length, from pole to borderland, which, again, had just happened through the swindling of... Um, all the entire Western uh, lands um, of Canada, which is how they got to from sea to sea. Um, and then at Britain's side, whatever betide unflinchingly will stand. That's what I was with, waiting for. <laughs> with, <laughs> with hearts we sing, God save the king, guide then one empire wide do we implore and prosper Canada from shore to shore. <laughs> like we might as That's well right. sing that one we might as well sing that one yeah i i mean for sure like i and one of the things is that i the key is not to exactly deny it what we need to be doing is talking about that and interrogating it because where we just set it aside it still has its effects right <laughs> we we need to it <laughs> i'm sorry i i i have i i can't resist the inclination to make fun of you about uh interrogating it like we're gonna, just like we're, on the grounds of dorky, dorky yeah, academic language. That's fair. We're gonna we're gonna put it in a, we're gonna put it in room three, and we're gonna we're gonna we're gonna just keep we're not gonna give it any 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 water or any any food, or we're just gonna interrogate it until it gives up the answers that we. Uh, I'd punch back, but I'm not like proud of the turn of phrase. We can move on. In any case. Um, but like, what's crazy about it is part of what I think is really interesting about the fact that Canada is sort of all mythical is that it really was part of this integrated imperial thing. So if you read something like the Truth and Reconciliation Commission reports, they've got, it's just bizarre. Like they've got very interesting details on the British atrocities of 1857 in India, combined with other parts of the Canadian government doing imperial war commemorations that have involved erecting monuments to canadian veterans of the 1857 war canadian vet when when you say the 1857 war you mean india i mean like Cana i mean like the people who got the breaking free of of uh british yeah. imperial control right um where 10 million indian people were slaughtered afterwards and then tens of millions more died in famines Oh, to so get we, yeah. to to sort of maybe wrap up a little bit, I think some of the big names we just need to be aware of. So, World War One was a big deal. It was a watershed moment for the development of modern propaganda. I mean, the preceding decades of imperial propaganda had been really important, but World War One really was, you know, it, it was a big deal, mm -hmm. and the. Canadian involvement in the international propaganda efforts was quite notable. I mean, right. John Buchan was, uh, was you know, he was Scottish and then he later came to Canada. But when the propaganda ministry became a ministry as such, it was under a certain Lord Beaverbrook, who had been a leading Canadian industrialist, first in charge of Canadian war propaganda, and then in charge of the entirety of the British Empire propaganda, who then, alongside Churchill was like part of the diehard camp in the 1930s calling for just like, you know, uh, blood and iron approach to crushing Indian rebellion. So I think part of what we need to do is be questioning why in the hell we're still trying to honor such a brutal history. But there are also real opportunities to link up with international discussions around empire because the whole thing is the decolonization involved like this fragmentation of our spheres of how we think about this stuff in a way that's totally artificial. Yeah. Yeah. And like, and again, I think your thing is especially <laughs> as regards education, 
like you've got you've got orange shirt day and then you've got remembrance day weeks later you've got the land acknowledgement which increasingly is detailed enough to give children a sense of the fact that this is a colonial construction you know like these... and that's good but there's going to be a conflict and tension around this stuff and we just have to realize that those who wish to divert this stuff are not going to say don't talk about it they're going to co-opt and twist it right so right, but that's what i'm saying like yeah. on, the, on the one hand they've got the, the like you'll have a land acknowledgement i know because you know a kid in virtual school you you've got they've got the computer open and they're blasting into the room first the land acknowledgement and then the national anthem totally and it's like uh <laughs> this national anthem was written to celebrate the dispossession of from the land that we're acknowledging here and there are things that are complicated about understanding how society works or whatever but it's pretty straightforward that if you have an effective cultural system that for a century is acculturating people into white supremacy as government reports in ontario for example like there's good francophone stuff but sticking here with like teaching prejudice have said you know what i mean they Mm -hmm. explain and go through the details being like we have been acculturating people into white supremacy a and then there was a forgetting of it but it doesn't work like that there really has to be a commensurate push back and we're not yet seeing that so where there's a far right developing or where people are wringing their hands around around persistent problems of white supremacy like it is a problem by design and there, like, there's no, there's no like, oh, oops, happenstance about this. It's got a cultural role. So would it be fair to say that the best way to tackle this is probably through writing some kind of newsletter? <laughs> okay, guys, I, I just wanted to, uh, I'm making fun of Dan, but Dan is starting a newsletter and uh, you should all, you should all subscribe to it. And uh, we will be saying more about it. Coming weeks. <laughs>